last week, we began talking about unity, and really this is a three-week series, but in reality, it's really one message spread over three weeks. So last week, we got the first point of this, and it was to love one another. Uh, did anyone after, <laughs> this is the way it always works with me at least, uh, we talked about loving someone, have an issue or a situation this week where it was a challenge to love someone. Anybody? Anybody? Uh, yeah. Anybody? I almost asked anybody sitting next to the one who that was. I saw somebody lower somebody's hand. <laughs> but <laughs> sometimes it's a challenge. Uh, but we're still instructed to love one another. And what Jesus said that we saw in John 17 in his prayer for us, those who will, will believe, was that our love for one another would then, it demonstrates to the world we belong to him. Which he also said back in John chapter 13, when they were having the Last Supper. You know, they were, they were having the Last Supper, and Jesus told his disciples that very thing. The world's going to know that you belong to me by the love you have for one another. Uh, and so we saw that, that the unity of his followers encourages belief. That our unity in love encourages belief. But the inverse is also true, that disunity encourages disbelief. That if we want to show the world that they don't need to believe in Jesus, all we have to do is just get in arguments and quarrels with each other that have nothing to do with eternity. And unity encourages belief. But unity is, is in Jesus' words from John 17, unity is the proof of God's love in us. It proves to the world that we have God's love in us. Because there's no other way we could be unified towards a common purpose when we have such vastly held, you know, differences of opinions we can only be unified because of christ but in in paul's words from first corinthians 13 the love chapter what love is we see that love is a decision that we make it's not an emotion we feel it's not we we, we feel affectionate towards someone or we we, we don't feel outright hostile hostile towards someone so we must love them no love is an active decision that we make even towards those that we are sometimes hostile towards love is an active decision we make towards them it's not just something passive that we let happen it we have to choose to love one another and what we see through paul's words in first corinthians 13 and we saw in jesus's words both in john 17 and john 13 is that if we are going to follow jesus we have to choose to love people all people, even problem people, even people we think are making terrible decisions in their lives. We've got to choose to love them. Even people that we don't like so much, even people when their name comes up on our phones, we go, oh, my word. Uh. We've got to choose to love them anyway because, honestly, Jesus chose to love us, and he doesn't groan when we call him. He doesn't look away when they're coming our direction at Walmart. He chooses to love us, no matter what. And he knows our inner workings. He knows the me how messed up we are. He knows, and he loves us anyway. So we need to choose to love one another. And that is core. That is foundational to unity. Core and foundational to the very thing Jesus prayed in John 17 for us is love. Love one another. And he said, by this the world will know that you are my disciple. Well, today we're going to look at an example of this an example of this kind of love, love that overcame someone's personal <laughs> feelings about another individual, love for the purpose of God's eternal kingdom, 
in Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Acts chapter 9. You can turn there if you have a Bible. If you, if you didn't bring one, you can use your phone. There's one on the rack there in front of you. Uh, it's on page 917 if you want to use one there on the rack. And if you do not have a Bible, take that one home that's on the rack in front of you. Take it. That's yours. Write your name in it in permanent ink. That is your Bible. Take it home. We've got some more we can use and replace that one. So take that one. Uh, if you're watching online or just in the room and you don't want to open a Bible, it'll be on the screens for you uh, as well. Acts chapter 9. What's going on here when we get to Acts chapter 9 is Jesus has done his ministry for several years. Uh, in the course of that time, he was training his disciples, even though they didn't often understand that what he was doing was training them. He was training them. And then Jesus left. He went to heaven, and the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit infused the disciples, and they immediately ran out into the street and started telling everyone they could possibly tell about Jesus. And people were getting saved left and right. And this caused all kinds of problems. Because just a month and a half before this thousands of people getting saved revival situation, the city had voted to kill Jesus. Just a month and a half. So it wasn't that long. Just a month and a half, that's what had happened. Almost a riot broke out over wanting to crucify Jesus. And so all these people are getting saved now in Jerusalem, but the people who voted to crucify Jesus have a great problem with this. And they're starting to crack down on these new Christians. And leading the charge in that crackdown is a young man named Saul. Saul was incredibly ambitious, very, very smart. He was mentored and trained by the leading Pharisee, a guy named Gamaliel. Saul was an up-and-comer. Saul was highly influential because of the passion he had, honestly, to snuff out Christianity. We learn later from some of Saul's testimonies uh, that he would tell after he came to know Jesus that he would bust into people's houses and cart them off to jail. He would take them off to jail and he would try to, to almost to the point of planting evidence so that they would get killed. And he would vote to kill him every single time. And uh, this is the kind of guy he was. He hated Christians. He hated them beyond hate. And so this was going on in Jerusalem. And so one day Saul goes to the chief priest, the high priest, and he says, Hey, I, we've been doing this here. It's been going great. We've been throwing all kinds of Christians in jail. But I want to go to this other town over here where Christianity's breaking out called Damascus. And I want to do it there but I need you to write me a thing, kind of a, you know, a note that says I can do it over there. And so the high priest writes his note, gives it to Saul, and Saul heads out with some guys. He's got some guys who accompany him, kind of like they're the enforcers, they're the knee breakers, all right? And they go with Saul to Damascus. But on the way to Damascus, Saul has a vision, and Jesus comes and visits Saul. Jesus, who has died and risen from the dead and gone to heaven, Jesus visits Saul in the middle of the road, and Saul is overwhelmed because he can see Jesus and hear Jesus. But all those guys who are with him can't see Jesus, but they can hear him. God allowed those other guys to hear the voice of Jesus there in the road. Imagine that. I mean, first off, try to imagine being Saul and seeing Jesus there in the road. But just imagine those guys who were with him. Saul collapses on the ground, and they hear this voice coming out of nowhere. And Jesus is speaking there to Saul in the road. And when Jesus leaves Saul, Saul is blind. And those guys who were with Saul take him into town, 
And they take him to the house they had reserved that they were going to stay with this other guy who was sympathetic to their political leanings. And so they go to this house, and Saul stays there for three days. And for three days, he doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. He's just contemplating everything that just happened. Overwhelmed. Because everything that his life had been building towards, now Jesus stands there in the road and tells him, you're wrong. Why are you persecuting me and my people? And Saul's trying to wrap his head around this. And in the course of that, because Saul is so brilliant, no doubt he is, is replaying all the Old Testament prophecies about the Son of God who was going to come. And he's thinking through all of this. And he's there in this house. And this is going on for three days. And he doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. And when those three days, you know, at the end of those three days, Jesus goes and visits another guy in town. And that's what we're going to look at today. So look down in verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Now, I know I've said this before, and I don't know how you read Scripture, but sometimes when I read Scripture, uh, it's... I can't help but inject what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling onto the people who are there. And so if I'm Ananias, they're in Damascus. And I'm not in Jerusalem where the, the heat of persecution is going on. And Jesus shows, I mean, Jesus, the one I've dedicated my life to now, shows up and says my name. I'm getting a little excited. Like, what is Jesus about to lay on me? I mean, even in his response, here I am. I mean, this is a response that we see throughout the Old Testament. Here I am, when uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, who will go for me? Whom will I send? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And here is Ananias responding, the same, here I am, Jesus, okay. You've come to my house, in the, Jesus is in my house. I mean, if Jesus were to show up to your house this afternoon, you putting out the good hand towels, making sure you got all the soap things filled, and you make sure everything's just, kids, you're going to pick up your room, Jesus is coming. You know, you make sure everything's right. Well, Jesus shows up in Ananias' house. He says, here I am, Lord. And look at what the Lord says to him in verse 11. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, Straight Street. Now, Straight Street is actually still there in Damascus today. It's one of the main thoroughfares in town. It's like Colin Ray Drive. I and mean, this is what it is in Damascus. So he says, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of, and at the house of Judas, look for, this isn't Judas Iscariot. This is a different guy named Judas. It's a common name. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Jesus kind of lays this out real quickly. He says, Ananias, I want you to go to Straight Street, go to Judas's house. There's a guy in there who's blind, Saul of Tarsus. He's praying. Don't worry. He's not like hostile at the moment. He's praying. And I want you to give him his sight back. Now, the way that Jesus describes Saul is very interesting because Jesus says that Saul is praying and he almost uses that as like the example that he's not a bad guy anymore. Like, I know you know who Saul of Tarsus is, you know, persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail, killing them, but he's praying now, so just chill. He's praying he uses prayer as an example of someone who is a follower of Christ. He uses prayer as an example of someone who is trying to follow closely along with Jesus. As though prayer isn't simply a list of our hopes and dreams, but prayer is an acknowledgement that I need outside help. I need someone to follow. I need direction. 
And the only way I can get that is from God. And so Jesus uses that here with Ananias. Say, don't worry about Saul of Tarsus, Ananias. He's praying. Well, Ananias doesn't really take to that. I mean, because he's heard of Saul of Tarsus. If you're Ananias, I mean, Saul of Tarsus to Ananias was like, you know, like the leader of the Taliban. I mean, like, bad guy coming to your town to kill you and your people. And then Jesus shows up and says, I want you to go to his house, even though most likely everybody in the house is going to hate your guts and probably want to kill you as soon as you walk in. I want you to go to that house, and I want you to heal him, give him his sight back. And actually Saul tells us later on when he, he gives his testimony that Ananias comes in, that doesn't just give him his sight back, Ananias also shares the gospel with him. That's assumed. Jesus telling Ananias, go there and give him his sight back. It's assumed because of the great commission uh, that he's supposed to make disciples of all nations. It's assumed that when he walks in the house, there's a bunch of lost people, he's going to tell them about Jesus. That's just an assumption that's made. So he says, I'm sending you to that house. Now, I know you're already going to go and tell them about Jesus, but I also want you to heal him. And so Ananias hears this. And Ananias is a little uncomfortable. Look at verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, Oftentimes when we talk about Ananias in this passage, we talk about how great he is and what he went and did, but I think Ananias does sometimes what we do, is God gives us some kind of instruction, and in this case it was to go and heal Saul of Tarsus, but also share the gospel with him. And Ananias has a conversation with Jesus like, Jesus, I don't think you know how bad this guy is. It's like he's trying to inform Jesus about something Jesus doesn't know about Saul, as though Jesus doesn't know something about Saul. And he says, Jesus, wait, wait, you want me to go, Saul is a, Jesus, okay, you've been in heaven for a month and a half, you don't know, Saul's bad, Jesus, he's bad now. Like, you don't want me to go over there, we don't want him on our team. Like, he is a bad guy, Jesus. And he's telling this to Jesus and trying to inform him about Saul. And Jesus' patience with Ananias is something that I am extremely grateful for because he has that same patience with us today. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Look at what Jesus says. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. I do want to point out, this is, a, this is bonus features. Notice he took care of his spiritual needs before his physical needs. He went and got baptized before he ate food. Remember, he hadn't eaten for three days. He hadn't drunk anything for three days. He went and got baptized before he took care of the physical needs. Because he knew if he was called to do something for the Lord, he needed to take care of his own spiritual self before he went and took care of other people's spiritual selves. So he took care of himself spiritually and then physically. But Ananias went to him. Ananias went to him. Even though Ananias didn't want to, even though Ananias didn't like him, even though Ananias thought, made assumptions about Saul's character, 
and even really about his potential usability for God. If you look at Ananias' argument to God, uh, to Jesus, Jesus, he's a bad, bad person. He did a lot of things against you. He, he is not who you, he's not the kind of person you want to use, Jesus. He's not the kind of person you want to use. But really, God's purposes use all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of worldviews as long as they're willing to be used by God. And Jesus is saying to Ananias, you don't determine who I can use. Your opinion about Saul does not determine if I can use him. He's going to carry my name. Did you catch that? He's going to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and Israelites. So that's pretty much the whole world. He's going to carry my name to everybody. And, and the actual word that's used there that, that we translate carry my name means to spread information extensively about a person. Like, so Jesus is telling Ananias, he's going to take the gospel everywhere and with great power deliver it in ways that no one else can. So I need you to go over there and give him the gospel first. Jesus, now if I'm Jesus, I would start, Ananias, who do you think you are questioning who I can use? Like Ananias, I can even use you, Mr. Arguing with Jesus. If you think about the Old Testament, and up until this point, the kind of people that God has used, they're all people with all kinds of problems. They're all kinds of problem people. I mean, you got Abraham, right? Abraham was a liar because he was scared. He told his wife to lie and say, say you're my sister because I'm afraid they're all going to kill me because you're so good looking. So he, he put the, the compliment there too. So, you know, you're good looking, so you better lie because you know, I don't want them to steal you. They're going to kill me and take you as, as, your, as their wife. So Abraham was a liar, but God used him. Moses was a murderer. And he ran scared. And it took God 40 extra years to get Moses to a spiritual place to be ready to be used by God. And Moses wasn't used by God until he was 80. Because he was running scared and fearful of all that God could do. And even then, when God came to him and said, Moses, I want to use you, Moses spent the better part of a huge chunk of Scripture arguing with God. And God finally said, Moses, stop offering excuses. This is ridiculous. Do what I want you to do, or I'm going to leave you out here in the desert. Moses argued with God. Moses was a murderer. David, guy we often use as an example. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. And yet David repented. And it says here in Acts, David was a man who fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation. Something I know we all would like to be said at our funerals. They fulfilled the purpose of God in their generation. David was used by God. Moses was used by God. Abraham was used. Gideon, a fearful coward, was used by God in a phenomenal way to go and, and overthrow the enemy. You see, all it takes to be used by God is a willingness to be used by God. It doesn't matter what kind of characteristics you've, experienced, you've demonstrated up until now. It doesn't matter. But from the perspective of Ananias... It doesn't matter what we think about somebody else as though we can tell God that he can't use them because of how they vote, because of how they've been raised, because of a decision they made before that I incredibly disagree with. 
as though I am to determine whether God can use them in spite of that thing or not. God can use anybody who's willing to be used. Anybody. Even somebody who doesn't smell like you think they should smell. Even somebody who doesn't drive what you think they should drive. Even somebody who's got a job you think they should not have or who went to a place last night you don't think they should have gone to. Even somebody who may have wronged you in the past and maybe still living in what you assume to be that same wrong. God can still use them. God can still use them if they're willing to be used by God. You see, no matter my opinion of somebody else, or, or my opinion about what I assume to be their motivations behind some of their decisions. That does not determine that person's usability to God. Because I'm not God. Because in my judgment about somebody else, I'm judging them based upon my own sinful brain and mindset and heart. I mean, even in Paul's uh, writings, what he says is he says, uh, I don't listen to how you judge me because I can't even listen to how I judge me because I know I judge me even wrong because I'm sinful. Who are we to determine who God can use and who God can't use? But there's Ananias, great faithful Ananias, who went and shared the gospel with Saul, who goes on to become the greatest missionary the world's ever seen, and we're sitting here in this room as believers in Christ because of his testimony, because Ananias went to do what God told him to do. Honestly, because God had patience with Ananias, even though Ananias argued with God. He said, Jesus, yeah. He's, he, no, Jesus, Jesus, Saul is bad. I know he's bad. He's killed my friends. He's bad, Jesus. And Jesus says back to him, no, he's a chosen instrument of mine. I have no idea what God's plans are for your life. I have no idea what God's plans are for anybody's life. I, I don't have any idea what God's plans are for my life. All I know is the last thing he told me to do, I've got to do until he tells me something different. And so who am I to determine what, what God told you? Unless it's absolutely different from Scripture. I've had, sometimes, sometimes, there was one time, in the not too distant past, somebody came to me and said, God told me to do this. I looked at him and said, yeah, but in his word he said this, so I think what he's telling, I think that's Taco's telling you to do that and not God. Because that's the opposite of what he said right here. I didn't say it like that. I, I was nicer than that. Tacos are good. They don't tell you bad things. But when we listen to the Lord and he can direct our path, we stop listening to ourselves. We, a lot of times that's what we need to do is stop listening to ourselves or stop listening to voices that end up pulling us away from where God wants us to go. I mean, Ananias arguing with God, and in truth, it's easy to look down on him and say, Ananias, man, that was dumb. I mean, dumb. God came to you, Jesus walked in your house, and you said pretty much, no, I'm not going to do that until he gave you a second chance. But we do that all the time with people. We make, even just in, in our mind, we may not say it out loud. I mean, maybe we do to our spouse or some, our friends. Maybe we do communicate negative thoughts about other believers and how God can use them. But at least in our minds, we may say things like, well, there's no way. There is no way God can use that person to do such and such. There's no, that person, if only Jesus knew what I know about them. We, again, we may not say it that way, but we sometimes think it that way. Like, 
he doesn't even know the decisions that person's made. He doesn't know how that person has a pattern of bad decisions and bad motivations and bad assumptions. And Jesus, he has no idea. When in truth, Jesus knows a lot more than we do. And Jesus has set different people up for different opportunities to, to, to bring together his kingdom and his purposes in his time. And so my, ability, my, my uh, opinion about another person's usability doesn't determine whether God can use them or not. But my opinion about the person himself also doesn't determine whether God can use them or not. The Lord uses anyone available. The Lord uses anyone available. He can use anyone who makes themselves available to him, makes themselves willing to be used by him. See, availability determines usability. Being available for him determines whether I can be used by him or not. Some years ago, uh, I, I had some knee problems right here on my right knee. It can have come from basketball or it could have come from squatting incorrectly. Most likely it came from jumping off a 20-foot balcony when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, right, Lester. I see it. He's nodding back there. That's, that's, I know my mom's watching this tomorrow, and she's going to say the same thing. Um, and uh, I, I had all kinds of problems, and I couldn't sit for very long. I know when we would drive, when we lived in Dallas and we'd drive to Houston, it was four hours and 15 minutes. I mean, I, I couldn't, I'd have to stretch my knee out constantly during the drive and rub it and have all kinds of problems with it. And I did, then went and did physical therapy, and they showed me all kinds of things. And, well, we bought an elliptical machine to help with that. And I did it a lot. Uh, but about a year ago or so, I moved the elliptical machine down to the shed. And I don't use it anymore at all. It's down there next to the extension cords and some empty boxes and the weed eater. I do use the weed eater. I used it yesterday. But because it's not available, immediately available to me, I don't use it. Because it's not available to me, I don't use it. Availability determines usability. We've got to be available in order to be used by God. Sometimes we may think we know better than God and how we should be used, but ultimately, we've got to trust that God knows better than we do. We've got to trust that God is in control and God has a plan and God's plan is good. And we've got to trust that he knows what he's doing better than I know what he should be doing. Because he is going to use people who are available. And if I'm not available to him, what does he tell us in his parables? If I make myself unavailable to Jesus, he will use somebody else to do the thing that he designed me to do. He's going to get his stuff done. Whether I'm a part of it or not is determined by whether I want to be a part of it or not. And I can say all day long, God, I want to be used by you. God, I want to be a part of what you're doing. God, I want to be in the midst of, of your movement. But if I am not making myself available, then I'm not going to be a part of what he's doing. If I, or if I put a, a caveat or, or a qualifier or a, uh, a list of demands on what, it, on, on what I need to be available. God, I will be available for you to do anything as long as it's only on every third Wednesday and it's after lunch during, you know, from 1.30 to 2.30 and, and uh, I've had enough rest the night before and my kids are all getting along and nobody's sick and I've got this much money in the bank and, and um, uh, uh, you know, and my car's working right. Then, God, during that, then I will be used by you. I'll make myself available to whatever you want to do in that moment. 
But that's not being available to God, putting a bunch of stipulations on what's necessary for God to use you. Being available to be used by God is saying, God, I'm available whenever, wherever, even if it's difficult, even if my, my bank account's zero, even if my car breaks down and all of the warning lights go off, like ours did a couple weeks ago, even if four-fifths of my children are throwing up all over the house, and this is the third time in two days we've washed all the couch cushions. That was two weeks ago, too. And then the dog gets sick. Even then, God, I'm available when it's hard and difficult and I haven't slept in three days. That's what availability is. It's being available even when it's not convenient. It's being available even when it's not convenient. Because when the car breaks down, the mechanic may need Jesus, and that's why your car broke down. And he's sending you into a place that Jesus needs to be. Or the, the, the doctor's office needs a little Jesus that day because they got screamed at that morning by somebody else and they need somebody to come in there and help them. That's why your kid threw up that morning, not because they, they got the bug from their brother. Maybe they did, but they got the bug from their brother so you can go in the office and you can be an encouragement to that nurse who really desperately needs some that day. Being available for Jesus means anytime, anywhere, any moment and keeping a lookout for it, an awareness of it. Always. Because just as much as anyone can be used by God, even you can be used by God. If, if the Lord uses anyone available, that means even me. Even me. If I trust his plan and I trust his design and I trust what he has, then God can use even me, no matter what somebody else's opinion of me is. No matter what somebody else has said about me. You know, he said, uh, in, or Paul wrote, who this Saul is the Apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament. And now Paul didn't necessarily, he didn't change his name as, as some of us communicate. He didn't change his name from Saul to Paul. Saul was a Hebrew name. Paul was a Greek name. So when he was sharing the gospel with people who spoke Hebrew, he used his Hebrew name, Saul. When he was sharing the gospel with people who spoke Greek, he used his Greek name, Paul. So for Paul, even his name didn't matter. He was willing to use whatever name to minister to the most amount of people. So he walked into a Hebrew house, they called him Saul. He walked into a Greek house, they called him Paul, wherever he went. That's in Scripture, I think it's, uh, it's a couple chapters, maybe Acts 11. It says Saul, who was also called Paul. It doesn't say Saul, who changed his name to Paul. He was also called that by other people when he would share the gospel with them. And he wrote so much of the New Testament. And he, in the book of Romans... Uh, he wrote, uh, chapter 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Every single person, live at peace with them. But he said, as far as it depends on you, you can't control what somebody else thinks. You can't control what somebody else thinks. Sometimes, if somebody's looking for something wrong, they're going to think something wrong, no matter if something's wrong there or not. And so if they have an opinion of you, or they're saying something about you, you can't change their mind. And if you start living to change their mind rather than living for Jesus, you stop living for Jesus. And Saul, Paul actually wrote that too. He says, if I live for the opinions of other people, I've stopped serving God and I'm serving man. And so you have to determine, 
in that moment, if God can use anyone, he can even use me, even if this person is saying this thing about me, I still just need to do what God told me to do. Even if somebody said something about you when you were a child, and that still rings in your ears every time you go to do something for God, you're not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not bold enough. You're not strong enough. You're, you're, you're <laughs> you too often say what's on your mind without filtering it. <laughs> you're too mean to your kids. You're too mean to your parents. You're not, you, you have done X, Y, and Z in your past, so you're just not enough. You're less than in God's eyes. And that may ring in your head, but that's not according to Jesus. That's according to what people may say. But God does not see as man sees. God told that to Samuel when he was anointing David as king. God does not see like we see. God sees our heart. God sees something different. God will use anybody and everybody who makes themselves available. No matter what you did yesterday, no matter what you said in the car on the way to church this morning, no matter what you whispered under your breath to your kids when you were walking in the room this morning, God will use anybody and everybody who's available to be used. And so we have to determine, do I trust God enough to be available for him to use me in any moment? But do I also trust God enough if he chooses to use somebody that in my determination should not be used? Maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe, just maybe, the very thing that Jesus told Ananias about Saul is what God is going to do through that person. That person is my chosen instrument to do something you have no idea about. No idea about that person that, that I'm going to use that you don't think can be used is going to end up coming to Christ and they're going to share the gospel with one individual who's going to share the gospel with another individual who's going to raise up children in their house who will get saved and one of them will go on to become an evangelist that's going to save millions. You have no idea if we're just available to be used by God. What he can do through available people is limitless. And so we have to ask ourselves that question then. Do I trust God enough to believe that he can use anyone, even somebody I don't like? Do I trust God enough to determine that he can use anybody and everybody who's available? And do I believe him enough to know that he can use anybody, even me, if I just make myself available to him? And then if all of us are working together to be available for Jesus, we can start being unified. The very thing that he prayed in John 17 and spoke in John 13, that if we would be available to him and be used by him towards a common purpose of the betterment of his kingdom and the spreading of his gospel, not only will our own households be changed, our community will be dynamically changed for the gospel when we start sharing the gospel in every respect and we start believing that even though this person may have made mistakes in their past I have too and he can use them just as much as he can use me maybe even most likely more so he can use anybody who's available so the question then is will you make yourself available today available today removing the limitations removing the, the necessaries for you to be available God, if you just give me more money, I'll be more available and I'll be more generous. But if you're not generous with the little you have now, you're definitely not going to be generous later when he gives you more. You've got to be faithful with little so you can be faithful with much. You've got to uh, uh, be available where you are 
before you can be available to where he wants to take you. Because he can't take you where he wants to take you until you're available to be taken there now. Are you available? Are you available for him to come and ask you to follow him today? See, that's what we do at the end of every one of these messages. We, we give what's called an invitation. And that's not just Baptist speak. That's an invitation. I'm inviting you to make a decision for Jesus. Inviting you to come to Jesus. Inviting you to heaven. But also inviting you, if you already know Jesus, inviting you to a better life. Not saying I've got it all together, because I guarantee you I don't. Absolutely, absolutely do not. But what we see in Scripture is the life he desires us to follow. And so even as I am on the journey to follow after Jesus, I'm inviting you to come with me, and let's follow him together. I may stumble in 10 minutes, but if we're walking together, you can help pick me up. So let's walk together. So that's what this is. I'm inviting you, inviting you first to, to come to know Jesus, inviting you to come to know Jesus, believe that Jesus is God's son, and that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. That's what being a Christian is. It's not living a perfect life because you're not going to, ever. We live in a fallen, sinful world. We're going to mess up. And just because uh, a person sins and messes up, that doesn't negate the fact that they're a follower of Jesus. It just means they're human. We're all going to sin. He tells us that. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. No, not one. And so we need Jesus to help us in that process. But even in that, when somebody else stumbles, we don't need to look down on them and say, man, they stumbled. They're a terrible person. No. We come alongside them. We pray for them. We pick them back up. So just like Ananias going to Saul, we have no idea what God's going to do through that person, even though they stumble again and again and again and again. I do. He's going to continue to use us if we're available. So will you believe in Jesus today? Will you believe in Jesus today? Whether you're in the, if you're in the room, I'd love to talk to you about it. I, if you want to know Jesus today, I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to say amen. And I can talk to you about it while we're still singing the song. Or even when we're done singing the song and we dismiss you feel kind of weird when everybody's standing up looking this way and you want to, you, we can talk about it when everybody's walking out of the room. I just love to talk to you about it because that's the whole reason we're here as followers of Jesus is to bring more people to Jesus so we can bring as many people to heaven as possible. And so if you want to know Jesus today, let today be that day. If, if you're watching online and you want to know Jesus, there's a button right below this video. There's a button right there that says, I made a decision or I want to make a decision, click on that button or link, no matter where you're watching it, our website, YouTube, Facebook, click on that link, and, and it will send an email right to my email, and I'll get it right here on my phone, and I'll call you this afternoon, and I'll pray with you and celebrate with you, and then check back with you later on this week and, get in, and, and, and help show you how you can take a next step for Jesus, what that looks like. And uh, so click on that link if you're there. And if you're in the room, I want to talk to you today about that decision. But what we all need to do is make ourselves available to Jesus. So that's the other thing I'm inviting you to do. If you already know Jesus, I'm inviting you to make yourselves available to Jesus. Even if it looks like something you didn't anticipate. 
even if it looks like something that makes you very uncomfortable, even if it looks like something that's outside of your comfort circle that really is, is you would call weird. <laughs> but I'm inviting you to make yourself available no matter what that means, no matter when that is. And let's see what God can do through a people who are available to him. He's going to change the world if we're simply available to him today.